That's right. And it's time, it's effort, it's work, it's intellectual labor uh, to really understand what's going on under the hood of how Bitcoin works. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Archetype Wealth Partners or its advisors. The mention of different asset types or securities do not constitute a recommendation for our clients. If you have any questions about the content of this podcast, please contact your advisor. In this episode of Navigating the Noise, I am joined by Trey Sellers of Unchained Capital. We discuss what Bitcoin teaches us about what money is, inflation, and trust. Trey explains the importance of managing your own private keys with cold storage, multi-sig, and some of the solutions that Unchain has to help individuals make self-custody less complicated. If you're looking to better understand Bitcoin's past and its future potential as an economic network, then join us and listen in. All right, everybody, excited to have with me today Trey Sellers, who is in business development with Unchained Capital and uh, exciting new firm, new space. And Trey, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and your background of how you got into Bitcoin and, and more about yourself? Yeah, thanks, Kane. Uh, excited to be here with you. Um, so, you know, I got into Bitcoin around 2014 timeframe, but I had first heard about it in 2011. Um, and you know, it took a few years to move from that hearing about it, uh, figuring out that this is something I should allocate some capital to, and then beyond 2014, when it became easy to actually acquire some, um, you know, actually going down that rabbit hole and figuring out why it's actually important. Why should you be more committed? Um, why that conviction level demands more capital allocation from, you know, that, that personal portfolio. Um, and so there's a journey there. Uh, but I came from the traditional finance world. Um, I've, I've been uh, with a broad experience in consulting, finance, technology, banking. Um, I uh, came to Unchained Capital from um, SunTrust, which became Truist uh, after a merger with BB&T. And, you know, have some pretty deep experience in capital markets, uh, sitting on the trading floor, working with traders, um, understanding trade flows and positions and risk management and that kind of thing. Uh, and so um, between that and a, a bit of a libertarian background, um, you know, I was very well primed to see Bitcoin for what it is, uh, see how important it actually will be uh, in the world. Uh, and we can dig into, you know, exactly the way that I view that, uh, if you'd like, but but that's the the general overview from from my background. Cool, and I think one of the most interesting things with your background uh, there early, um, obviously you mentioned libertarian views, which helps a lot uh, from the Bitcoin perspective. But most important or, or most interesting is coming through SunTrust now Truist and kind of the tra very, very traditional regional banking. What was that like inside that organization um, before you made the switch over to Unchain? And then uh, what made you ultimately say, okay, this is the path. I'm going to switch gears, this new system and, and make that jump. Yeah. Traditional finance is exactly what it sounds, right? It's traditional. Um, there's a slow way of going about things. 
Um, it's very conservative. And while within the organizations, there is, uh, there are certain people who uh, have a proclivity for being interested in something like Bitcoin, um, you know, actually getting an organization to pay attention to something like that uh, takes a little bit more work, takes a little more time. And there's a timing aspect to it as well, right? Um, you know, I was at SunTrust and then Truist for uh, close to six years. Um, coming on the, the 2019 timeframe, um, you know, I was deep down the Bitcoin rabbit hole. Um, as I said, I, I started to really understand why this thing was important and, and where we were going and started to get uh, an inkling for what was going to happen in 2020 and 2021, what we've seen in terms of the Bitcoin price, um, market adoption, and larger players coming into the space. And so in anticipation of that, I started thinking, well, people are going to have questions about Bitcoin. People are going to have questions about this whole space and who better than me to be the person uh, that is that subject matter expert that people can come to with those questions. Um, why shouldn't I be the guy to, to answer those? And so um, I started developing uh, a, a presentation that I called Bitcoin for Bankers, uh, and it's geared toward exactly that, explaining Bitcoin in a way uh, that, that comes at it from the angle of what uh, a banking institution uh, would care about, um, explaining what Bitcoin is, uh, why it's important, and why, most importantly, uh, a company like uh, Truist or any other large institutional finance um, organization should care about it, which is that their clients are going to care about it. And we've started to see that. Um, you, know, you see headlines all the time about uh, Goldman Sachs and JP Morgan and their clients are asking um, private wealth people about how they can get exposure to Bitcoin. And, and rightly so, right? They, they know that they need to get some allocation there. The proper allocation of Bitcoin uh, is, is definitely not zero, uh, different for everybody, of course. Um, and as people start to realize that, they want to go to the people that they are already have relationships with, that they already trust, uh, and get some advice there, right? And so, you know, my thinking was, uh, we can be in a position to guide people who have those questions. Uh, and in order to do that, we have to educate ourselves. Um, me being in a position where I already understand this uh, allows me to, to make the case there. And so uh, one thing led to another, started presenting to different groups around the bank um, and uh, eventually worked uh, into a position of talking to some pretty senior people um, who were asking all of those same questions, right? Uh, and it becomes pretty clear that there's uh, an understanding that this thing is not going away, that it's important and people need to be paying attention to it. Uh, but the question is, how should they engage? What is the strategy for which a large financial institution should actually be uh, looking at being involved? Uh, to what extent? And where do they focus their efforts first? And where do they focus their capital first? Uh, and, and so from there, uh, you, can, you can imagine how those conversations start to develop. And I think that for, for you and I, the way we met through a mutual connection, um, somebody I'd known in the past, somebody you worked with in the past and kind of hooked us up and, and 
we had a couple of meetings, a couple of conversations, and we share that same view. I mean, that process, just listening to you walk through that is very much um, how I came to Bitcoin, how I came to the crypto ecosystem and what um, I decided kind of in that same window of, you know, you sort of decided in 2018, you get uh, greater confidence in 2019. And then by 2020, you're like, if this isn't done, within the traditional space on my side, the wealth management space, you will at some point be last of the party and you don't really want to be that um, for your clients, for your business model, and just for the future of wherever this thing goes. So uh, I can definitely relate on a lot of levels of what you just said. Yeah. And, that, and that's the way that those conversations started to develop as well. Right. Like I was putting together an email list uh, internally um, people were coming to me and, and asking to, be updated on what was going on. And as we saw the uh, huge growth in early 2021 of Bitcoin in the market, and we're making new all-time highs and Tesla's buying it and um, MicroStrategy is doing its thing uh, and Square's buying it. And there's just headline after headline, the market's really heating up. Uh, obviously that drives more interest, right? And so um, the question is, how can you parlay that into a more deeper understanding of what Bitcoin is and, and why it's valuable and why people should care as opposed to, you know, the surface level, uh, Hey, this thing's going up in value. Uh, maybe I should be paying attention. Yeah. And I think what we're seeing now and it's sort of the driver behind this podcast, the intention of this podcast is exactly kind of what you faced at, at SunTrust and, and Truist uh, was the initial driver. And then, the secondary driver for these types of conversations and, and what I hope to provide value for listeners is it seems just the masses are coming to that same realization uh, because of all that transpired in 2019, 2020, and 2021 so far. And, and what is the general thought of what's likely to continue with inflation and all these other supply chain issues and all these issues around the monetary system. I don't really want to go down that rabbit hole because it can get negative, but I think the big thing is the average person um, is doing what most Bitcoiners did in 2013, 14, 15, or before, but definitely by 17, 18, uh, 19, where they put connect to the dots and are like, what is money? And, and people are starting to philosophically ask that question that we've ignored, ignored for 50 years because to most people, money was the ability to just swipe at a store and go. Um, and so maybe uh, you can help relay or relate to that experience and then what you guys do at Unchained and kind of the way you think about that question and the importance of just understanding that feels that, that money is more than the ability to buy or sell something. Yeah, and people talk about that medium of exchange functionality uh, versus a store of value and all that, you know, really money is a, a communication protocol, right? It's a way that we communicate value to one another um, and a way that we can do that when we don't trust each other as well. Um, the market provides signals um, constantly, billions and billions of signals every single day to tell people where there's scarcity, where there's abundance um, and 
you make those decisions on a daily basis as to how you're going to allocate the scarce time that you have and the scarce capital that you've been able to accumulate such that you're going to be better off tomorrow, the next week, the next month, the next year. Um, you know, one of the, the key themes in the Bitcoin standard from Safe Amus is this concept of the trade-off with your future self, right? Yep. Um, and, and a lowering of time preference. And Bitcoin really... It hits you over the head with that, right? Because there's such an opportunity cost for making the wrong decisions with your capital um, that could have gone toward acquiring this asset that is designed to pump forever, right? It's designed to go up in value um, every year, every five years, every 10 years. And that's what we've seen. And the more people start to realize that there's an opportunity cost, um, that they could build a strong foundation for their financial future, uh, the more they start to realize they need some exposure here, right? And um, as that understanding happens, there's a natural proclivity to change your habits to support that savings mentality. When you're dealing with fiat, it's the exact opposite, right? The natural proclivity is I know this thing's going to lose value if I sit on it. So I need to search for something that I want to buy uh, or some investment that's going to be able to keep up with the rate of this inflation uh, in, the, in the traditional sense of the word, meaning the, the, the rate of growth of the money supply that uh, is, is really just eating away at your cap, capital allocation if you don't do something about it. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and, and, and a couple of things just because I wanted that you made a couple of critical points, just want to hop in there that money is a communication tool. It is not a thing. It has no value. It changes numerous times throughout history. I believe, I believe you believe we're at one of those inflection point where what is money changes. Um, but the understanding that money to me, money is a belief system. And when most people believe that something is money, it becomes a communication tool, no different than what the internet has allowed. The structure of Bitcoin looks just like the internet, acts just like the internet. And we will see on this new network, these different communication tools like social media, like peer-to-peer -peer networking, like e-commerce that allow us to better communicate value across the internet. And uh, you, you mentioned the Bitcoin standard. Um, I think a lot of people maybe overlook that book because they see Bitcoin and like, I just don't want to get into that uh, tribal mentality. But the, the fact is you touched on it. It's more about what you do with your time and having a low time preference versus, um, you know, a short time preference, which we all have in today's world and driven by social media. And really the book's not about Bitcoin at all. I think it's not until the end that even starts to mention Bitcoin. It's more about, you know, Austrian economics, uh, more about economics that align with biblical perspectives of do good, be good, work, be productive, you know, multiply. Um, and then uh, Andreas Antonopoulos, he was the original or one of the original Bitcoin evangelists who really does a phenomenal job of connecting money as a communication tool. And it was one of the first places I heard it. Um, and, and maybe you have a different story on that, but it, maybe you could dive a little bit deeper on what that means to you. I think that's a big point that 
today, as we sit in 2021, in the past five decades, as you know, the U.S. dollar has been the reserve currency of the world. It seems the average person views money as this thing that's going to get them something, and we've seen that exponential loss of value. And so now, people, we live in this world where it's cash or not cash, and so we got to have that cash that we do things with daily, but our non-cash needs to be invested in ways that allow us to communicate value into the future. Yeah. As I was was saying, right. Like people just know that if they hold onto their cash, it's going to lose value. They may not understand why that is the case. um, But when we have events like we had in uh, March, 2020 uh, and through the next few months where um, central bankers are on TV every single day talking about the next stimulus program, the next money printing uh, episode, uh, it starts to become very apparent that um, not only can you take kind of a passive approach to, uh, yes, I know cash is trash and I need to be invested, but you need to be very much thinking about uh, the opportunity cost and whether or not the inflation rate that you have for yourself um, actually aligns to what you're being told um, in financial media and from the government and that kind of thing, right? Um, You know, Michael Saylor has made this point beautifully, um, which is that inflation is a vector. Everybody has a different cost of living um, Mm -hmm. and different aspirations for what they want to do with their lives. And Mm -hmm. when you are able to plan for that because you have a strong foundation uh, in terms of a a solid sound money principle underlying the economy, it becomes so much easier to make those decisions as to how can I get this life that I want to get in the future. Um, When the purchasing power that you've already earned continually is eroded by somebody else and it's not you, right? Somebody else controls that printer and it's definitely not you. Um, you're, you're constantly fighting that battle back to even, back to break even before you can even think about building that capital stock for yourself, for your family, for those future generations, for the lifestyle that you want to live, you've got to just get back to even. Uh, and that hurdle rate becomes greater and greater, the more interventions that, that are coming, right? And so, you know, I, I bring this back around a, a little bit to, to Unchained uh, and some of the work that Parker Lewis has done. And Parker is head of business development there. Um, he's well known for his Gradually Then Suddenly series. Um, but recently he's been talking about um, Bitcoin in one lesson, right? And that one lesson is that um, Bitcoin and the success of the network and of this new money, it hinges on this scarcity function and the fact that there's only 21 million, right? And if the Bitcoin network can credibly enforce that fixed supply of 21 million, it will become a global reserve asset, a global reserve currency. Uh, And if it cannot credibly enforce that, then it won't, right? It's this binary uh, decision tree. um, And the journey for understanding why it's able to credibly enforce that 21 million, um, that takes time. But if you start from that- And I'd like to say a lot of time. And I think that's, in my personal opinion, how- Bitcoin has stood in plain sight for the better part of a decade uh, without anyone noticing because most people 
today, if we're honest, aren't as willing to put in a lot of time if they can't see very near-term results. That's right. And it's time, it's effort, it's work, it's intellectual labor uh, to really understand what's going on under the hood of how Bitcoin works. Um, And most people are not going to dig into that work unless they understand why they should care, right? And for a long time, while the dollar's purchasing power is more slowly eroding, um, and we've got these crises that come up, you know, every seven to ten years or so. Um, yeah, people kind of know that there's a there's an issue out there, but it's not like slapping them right in the face. Um, but as these interventions start to accelerate. Um, as they grow exponentially, it becomes more and more clear that there is a problem, right? And, and I know we don't want to go down this rabbit hole, but once you recognize that there's a problem, then it becomes more apparent why you should be spending some time and effort and work to, to really understand what Bitcoin is and why it provides that, that alternative. And totally agree. And, and we've talked about it a number of times is we can easily get stuck in that dollar's bad, Bitcoin's going to take over. And, you know, who knows, maybe that happens. But I do think there's a lot of positive things in this transition, whether that happens or not. The positive is that people are understanding and the, and the, the tool, the digital tools that are starting to be used around money and these API-like connections and integrations will, in my opinion, allow something brighter on the other side. It's just getting from A to B, just like in 2007 and 8, the the larger problem that wasn't economic was you had two large generations jockeying for position, higher level positions inside corporate organizations. And so you had 50, 60-year-olds with all the experience that didn't do the things the same way that the 35 and under crowd did it, and they both wanted the same role and to be able to call the shots. And 10 years later, once or five years later, once the crowds kind of moved and progressed on in age, you saw that leap. So from 2012 to 2020, we actually had, you know, a lot of good things happen, even though economically stuff was still kind of bad. So uh, Ross Stevens, um, president of NIDIG and, and Stone Ridge, he had a great quote um this past year in, in a in a video he did podcast he did and he talked about one thing that struck me and and i agree with it but i just like to share is that people don't want dollars they don't want bitcoin they don't want this monetary unit what they want is as you alluded to their work their sweat and their equity that they put in today that that got value to maintain its value and increase in value over time. What they want is something out in the future when they're ready to spend whatever that money unit is to have more value then than it does today when they did the hard work. Yeah, that, that's right, right? Fiat money doesn't respect you and it doesn't respect your time, right? It, it's mm-hmm. constantly there eroding the work that you've already put in. Um, Bitcoin respects your time. You cannot be debased when you're holding Bitcoin. Nobody can come in and say, uh, look, I'm going to create a whole bunch of new Bitcoin and give it to my friends. That can't happen, right? You know, when you hold one Bitcoin that you hold one, one twenty-one millionth of these total supply, and that will never change. It will never change. Um, and in so doing, 
as the economy continues to grow apace uh, over the years globally, we have new technology, we become more productive, we expect that our purchasing power in terms of the money that we hold becomes more valuable and allows us to truly save for that future scenario where we want to be able to take care of our family and provide, um, you know, a capital stock available for future generations. And, and um, you know, all of the work that you do throughout your career should be able to add up to something without you having to earn it a second time, right? You shouldn't have to work for years and years and then also do this second order work to build upon that um, that wealth that you've taken in, in order to keep up with a constant debasement, right? You shouldn't have to earn your money twice. You shouldn't have to work to worry. And, and in this system, we spend this like, I'm going to work for 35 years and then worry if what I was able to put back is going to make it the next 40 years. To come back to something you said a minute ago about inflation, I wrote a few months ago an article on that, um, it's on our Archetype Wealth Partners blog about inflation and made that exact point. Inflation is not what the central bank tells us it is. It's not, my inflation is not your inflation, is not my client's inflations, is not my peers' inflations. My, our inflation, it probably looks like our closest six friends because we're going to do the same things. We're going to be interested in the same things in those groups that we hang out with. But by and large, your inflation is whatever your monthly bills are, whatever the things you like to do on a monthly annual basis are. And if those prices go up, that's inflation. Even if CPI goes down, if those prices go down and CPI goes up, it's, it's deflation, which is actually good because your life got cheaper. Uh, even though the things that you do stay the same, or maybe you can do more of the things you like to do because those costs went down. And that's one of the principles about the math behind Bitcoin allows that deflationary aspect to take hold whereas the math behind fiat reserve currencies or fiat global currencies around the world uh, because the supply is inflated that math works against you and and for me it was living in this traditional financial system trading markets inside of 2007-8-9 through 12 I started to realize that there was a problem, but too young to really like understand what it was. And then kind of 14, 15, 16, developed some personal thesis and started to really recognize the goods that I most commonly purchase, McDonald's hamburgers, you know, major league fitted hats. And I use those examples because they're very common goods. They're, they're things that a lot of people, those prices were doubling and almost trip, tripling over the period of time that I commonly was purchasing them. And so I'm sitting here looking around thinking we've got a problem regardless of who's going to step up to the mic and say there is or isn't inflation. Like my budget tells me there is. Yeah. And, and, and that's certainly one aspect of it, right? But you can't retire on a stockpile of hats, right? What you, what most people are looking for and the inflation index and the key inputs into that for that particular person are how expensive is it for me to send my kid to college, right? Mm -hmm. How expensive is it for me to potentially buy a vacation home uh, somewhere uh, or to upgrade my home in a way that 
uh, provides my kids with a backyard and and uh, a place to play um, and uh, friends that are have similar interests to me and uh, I want to live in a, a certain place in the country or or a different country or whatever right like you know these consumer goods um, and Netflix subscriptions is, is always you know something people talk about like yeah that's not really going up that much in price um, but but again Bitcoin, forces you to think about the long-term. Those are the big expenses that you need to be thinking of. Those are the hurdle rate that you need to be using uh, to justify where you allocate your capital in terms of, of investments. And if uh, education, higher education is going up by 20% per year on average over a 15 year period uh, when your kids are five and six years old, um, that's very significant in terms of what opportunities are available to them and how hard you have to work um, and how much you have to earn, uh, be it by, you know, working and earning a buck uh, or investing that money and generating some yield on that capital that you've already worked for in order to stay ahead of the curve uh, to send your kid to college, right? And who knows what college will look like in 20 years. I personally think, um, you know, there, there's not as much value there as what people have Agreed. put onto it in the past. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that that, that trend um, turns out to be true, uh, but that's not the point, right? The point is, right. is that there's a, there's a long-term view of your life and um, you want to be able to know and plan for and have it be attainable that if you work hard, you put in the work, um, you put in your time, you make good decisions, you take responsibility for that, that you're not going to have your wealth pulled from underneath you by forces that are completely beyond your control. It, and that's a really good summary of kind of some of the things we mentioned, but didn't dive into um, the what is money question. It's not just swipe and go, swipe and go, swipe and go. It's what do I want my life to look like? in 10 years? Do I want 10 houses on the beach and multiple cars? Do I want no houses and one car or do I want to, it forces you to rethink about money because it's, like I said, it's not that thing that's just swipe and go. It's what are all the parts of my life now, intermediate term and long-term that I need. And, and Americans by and large haven't done, you know, on a mass level, done a phenomenal job of thinking about how do I want my life to look like in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And that's a lot of what we help uh, at my firm. We help people do is map that out. And then you say, okay, I have this capital and the importance is, and what Bitcoin teaches you is how to allocate that capital, not just to one thing or two things, but maybe five or six things. Because if you go all in on one or two things, you know, probabilities tell you you're either going to get lucky and it hits or you're going to get unlucky and it doesn't or somewhere in between. So having it a little bit spread out, um, but in a way that matches the things that you've decided you want your life to look like, um, how you've wanted to go. So uh, one of the big challenges that you've come across, I've come across personally, you probably came across personally, everybody that enters the space is once you get past what is money, what is Bitcoin? And you're like, okay, cool, I get it. But these private keys, like, I'm just scared because right now I can go to my bank and if something happens, 
you know, they're going to give me my money back. So you guys you hope so. Yeah, you yeah, hope so. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. It is it contractually they don't have to because it's written that way, but historically they have. But you guys help uh individuals with multi-sig wallets and and handling of those keys so that if they're they're lost, maybe you just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, you, you say historically they have, and and that's true to some extent, uh, but historically there have been a lot of issues as well, right? Yep. Um, you know, and and Bitcoin is global, and there's a global um, there are global considerations around who's impacted by what banks going under and bail-ins, like we saw in Cyprus back in the day, and and that kind of thing, right? So we um, saw them here. Yeah, exactly right. And 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 so um, you know, Bitcoin provides an opportunity for you to truly own your wealth. You can truly own it in a way that does not depend on anybody else. You do not have to rely on a bank to hold your money. You do not have to rely on a bank to allow you to spend those funds uh, in the manner that you see fit. You have complete control over your Bitcoin if you choose to use the features that are available to it, right? And, um, you know, one of the things that we uh, do at Unchained Capital is to make it easy for people to take advantage of that, uh, eliminate any single points of failure when it comes to actually securing uh, Bitcoin private keys, uh, and then help just educate people on what this stuff is, right? So you alluded to, yes, it's it's a little bit daunting and a little bit difficult for people to start to wrap their heads around, you know, how Bitcoin works, um, how you actually control the asset, uh, and um, what the pitfalls are there of potentially losing that private key and therefore completely losing access to your Bitcoin. Um, so, you know, let, let's dive in a little bit, right? A, a few fundamentals. Bitcoin is always associated with a address and that address you can validate for yourself if you're running a Bitcoin node uh, or look at somebody else's node to see the balance of Bitcoin that is, is there and is associated with it. And that address and that Bitcoin always has associated with it a private key. That private key controls the Bitcoin. It allows you to spend it. Um, and really what we're talking about is just information. It's uh, in reality just a big number, like a huge number, very difficult for people to work with traditionally, but, our, but software helps with doing that. But the key point is that if somebody gets a hold of the private keys to your Bitcoin, they can spend it, right? And so there's a different mental model that you have to start working with in order to protect this secret information that is the key to your wealth. And and one thing there to, that in my presentations that I use with clients, prospects, and just people that talk is that sounds scary. Oh my gosh, this key, if I lose it, I lose all my wealth. Well, what happens if you give someone a key to your house? What happens in the 1760s if you gave somebody a key to the lockbox that's held at the bank that the bank robbers always robbed you know banking will not go away the way that banking has happened has changed thousands of years and we're in one of those times where we are seeing change and new financial rails which are running off bitcoin and other crypto networks and there's it's another form of a key so maybe to you know suppress a little bit of those fears with banking until somebody figures out a way to do it without a key there's always been a key, and I kind of expect that there probably always will be some sort of key. 
but the medium of that key and with which it's held is what changes to fit yeah, and, how we live. And, and, you know, maybe a, a point of distinction here is that for Bitcoin, the key is the asset uh, in a very real sense, right? Yep. So, um, you know, Bitcoin is a digital bearer instrument. It's akin to holding a gold bar in your hand, uh, akin to holding a bag of cash uh, on your person. Um, and the key difference there, though, is that it's scalable. Mm-hmm. If you want to hold a billion dollars in gold, you need armored guards and 24-hour security and six-foot you know, inch wall. And that's before in, in we vault. even get to like how it gets to the vault. Exactly right. And, and how do you know that the gold that you are receiving is real gold? Uh, and that's a very expensive to assay and, and all of that, right? And so, um, you know, the, the marginal cost of holding Bitcoin in uh, $100 increments versus a billion dollar increments uh, is, is negligible, if any at all, right? And so it's this scalable way of using a, um, a, a money uh, and storing value for the long term, and then being able to send it across the world instantaneously. Um, try that with gold, right? And so all of these properties are great, uh, but you don't get the advantage of them if you are not holding your own keys, right? And so um, before we go to how to mitigate the, let me let me scare people a little bit more, right? Which is that, as we mentioned, Bitcoin is always associated with an address that Bitcoin always has a private key and he who controls that private key controls the Bitcoin. What that means is that if you have bought Bitcoin on an exchange like a Coinbase, uh, you do not have Bitcoin. You don't own it. You have an IOU to that Bitcoin and you've got to hope that Coinbase or whoever it is, uh, is going to allow you to access your money uh, when you want to uh, to access it, right? Uh, and there are a lot of reasons why they may not be able to honor that or might not want to, right? As the value of Bitcoin continues to increase, goes up 10x, 20x, 30x, right? It, it's designed to pump forever. It's going to continue to increase. And that makes it that much more valuable for these platforms to keep the assets with them, right? Um, they don't want to see them leave and they can put up uh, limits to what you can withdraw and what you can do with your money. And they might not have a choice either, right? As Bitcoin continues to grow in adoption, it becomes more valuable. More people plug into the network, which makes it even more valuable. Um, But there's a world where the government comes in and says, hey, Bitcoin is way too big, way too valuable. And so many people are plugged into it. We believe it is a systemic risk to the financial infrastructure in the US or in the world. Uh, and therefore, we need to take a heavier hand in terms of regulating it. We're not going to allow people to withdraw their Bitcoin to take advantage of all of those key aspects of what makes it valuable in the in the first place. Um, and, and if you're in that scenario, it's too late, right? You 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 need to take custody of that Bitcoin before we get to that scenario. And the the beauty there is um, that can be good or bad, but it's a choice. It's a choice the individual makes. That's the one thing I think that is different that is a good thing about bitcoin is the current financial system there is no choice there there was not any choice until you got venmo and you got square and you got cash app and you got all these other apps because they took dollars out of those institutions now they're 
very similar, but they gave you the freedom to choose who and when and where and how you sent money. Bitcoin does that to some but extent on additional level because you own the key so you control the money. And for that's the hard, I think the hardest part uh, for the traditional clientele of wealth management of banking, because they, most people like the ability to say, you hold it. If something goes wrong, I'm going to point the finger at you. But I think from a societal level, we've kind of reached peak. I'm going to sue somebody if a decision I made goes wrong. And Bitcoin is, is that pendulum swinging back. Like, look, to be successful in life, you have to take risk. And you can't always just point the finger at somebody else's fault because of a decision you made. And so Bitcoin is giving that population that want to truly own it the right to take control of that. And with that right does come the responsibility. If you mess it up, if you lose your keys, if whatever happens with those keys, you lose your funds. Now, for some people, that's just too scary. And they would rather take the risk of being in a sort of centralized in institution. And I, I don't know the right answer to that because it's there's 7 billion people, which means there's hypothetically 7 billion different choices um, to each his own in that regard. But the beauty of it is there's now more optionality from a quote unquote banking perspective than in decades prior. Yeah, that's right. And, um, you know, again, to, to get some of the current value out of owning Bitcoin, uh, you need to hold your own keys, but let's not forget as the network grows and there are more applications that are built and connected to it, uh, there are a a larger user base, more adoption. There's going to be a huge amount of innovation that is taking place over the next few years, over the next 10 years that will only be accessible to people who do control their own keys, mm-hmm. right? And to, um, to not have the ability to take advantage of what that could do for your life. Uh, I don't want to speculate on what that might look like, right? right? But, um, but the fact that it is this bearer instrument um, and, and the fact that you can control it opens up the possibility for a lot of new uh, and exciting things. And if you are totally reliant on a third party there, uh, you may not be able to experience that. You may not be able to um, add value to your life in that way as it's going. Um, you know, and on that well, point, that's to relate it to things we know, that's exactly what the internet, it gave us the information to do as we choose. And it was a fairly open architecture that allowed innovators to come in and build things to give us other choices. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and, and in order to take advantage of that, we need to be using Bitcoin the way it was designed, right? It's not designed to rely on other people. It's designed right. specifically so that you don't have to rely on other people. You can verify everything yourself. You can know for sure that nobody else can stop you from making a transaction um, and that your money is not being debased, right? Bitcoin is money that cannot be manipulated. What does that mean? It means the supply cannot be manipulated. The issuance schedule cannot be manipulated. The transactions cannot be stopped from happening and past transactions cannot be changed, right? Um, and, And being able to take on that type of empowerment does come with some responsibility. Um, But the good news is that it's not so scary and not so difficult as it sounds. So we can, we can talk a little bit more about that and how Unchained helps people to to do that. 
it's not as difficult as it sounds. Um, there's definitely a learning curve involved and a different way of thinking about it, but that's exactly what we help people to do. And, and one point on that, my kids, your kids, their kids, private keys, wallet addresses, and all those things aren't going to be as scary because they're going to have grown up with it. Just like half my life was no internet. The other half was the evolution of internet. So I'm, I'm like on the fence of if, if this is hard along the way or not, my parents and their parents were like, oh my gosh, sending an email is so hard, you know? So we have to keep in mind with that, with that fear of what are these keys? What if I lose them? Generations that grow up with this, it'll just be like social media to a 18 year old today. That, that's right. Um, and the user experience today is way better than it was four or five years ago. In three years Bitcoin, ago, yeah. Three years ago, two years ago. I mean, it's, it's incredible uh, the amount of progress we've made there. Um, I can only imagine how much easier and better it's going to get over the next 10 years. Uh, and, you know, to your point about your kids, right? My kids have a lightning wallet that I help manage for them. And we talk about sats and Bitcoin and all this stuff. And when they come across, you know, some pocket change that they found in the, in the couch, they ask me, Hey daddy, can I trade this in for some sats? Uh, and the answer is always, yes, you should always be buying more Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> so I, right? I've taught mine to believe that if they do their homework, their Bitcoin goes up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. And over the long term, that's definitely true. Um, yeah. But you know, you're, the, the way I like to think about it and the way I kind of communicate it is like, look, your, your financial score in life uh, in the future is how many sats do you control, right? How, how, much, how much Bitcoin do you actually have? So I'm, I'm speaking a little bit in jest, right? We're in this transition period where, um, where it's not overly easy yet to be able to use Bitcoin. And there's so much stuff that's still being built. But the flip side of that is the asymmetry that's built into the fact that we are that early. Right. Yeah. By the time that um, that Google was um, ubiquitous, the opportunity was largely gone. Right. In terms of an investment thesis and that kind of thing. And so, when you're thinking about allocating capital, there's certainly going to be volatility. There's certainly going to be learning, uh, learning and growing pains as part of that. Um, but the fact that we are so early and we're looking at like less than 1% of the world actually adopting Bitcoin and having any meaningful exposure to it uh, just highlights what that opportunity looks like in the future. And in my 15 years of, of being in financial services, wealth management, uh, one point I'd like to make on something that you, you just astutely said about it being easy. Anything related to finances and money that was easy, more often than not, led to credit card debt or financial ruin. Winning the lottery for the winner was easy. They just pick some numbers, they scratch a ticket, but most lottery winners go into debt. Uh, fun, you know, athletes historically, you know, it's hard work to be an athlete, but they get paid large sums of money to play a game. Um, you know, I'm jealous of them, but many of them historically have had financial issues because it, the money, quote unquote, came easy for something they love to do, and they just spent. Um, so in a lot of cases, you see an inheritance get blown because that money just shows up and you didn't have to do that work. And so back again, that's the one thing that Bitcoin and this crypto ecosystem has taught us that easy 
is not always good when it comes to money. Yeah, that's exactly right. It just, it goes back to that time preference. It goes back to that personal responsibility and Bitcoin brings responsibility and thoughtfulness and planning back to the world, right? Mm -hmm. You have to plan and you have to be thoughtful about your capital. Uh, you can't be willy nilly with it anymore because the opportunity cost is just too strong because Correct. Bitcoin is designed to pump forever and it's been going up at hundred plus percent per year over the last 10 to 12 years. Uh, that, that trajectory does not seem to be slowing down. Uh, and in fact, there's a good case to be made that it's going to increase um, as that adoption curve begins to steepen as more and more people realize that they should be storing their wealth, their, their life force, their financial life force in something that cannot be eroded, cannot be taken away from them, um, and that they can fully control, right? It's about taking full control over your life and being able to think about what you want your life to develop into, and then having the tools that can allow for that without having to always try to fight back to, to get to zero. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important. Those points are very important in these times where we're seeing a lot of people that just want their freedoms. They want to be able to make choices. They don't want to be able to be told what to do. And, you know, in a positive light, even though it's challenging kind of getting through these years of uncertainty as the system changes on a go forward, when your money is easily connected to other things and you have the responsibilities and understand the responsibilities in place to make good decisions to plan, it just makes it that much easier to do and go and be the things you really want to be to me. But it starts with that philosophical journey of understanding that core. What is money? What does that mean for me? What does my capital need to do for me, my family, my you know future generations that follow? Yep, that's that's absolutely correct, right? Uh, um, so I was going to bring it back, you know, a little bit more toward that that Bitcoin and the practical application of of using Bitcoin and and being able to take advantage of what makes it valuable, which is the ability to hold it, the ability to control it, right? The way that most people have done this for any large sums of money, uh, if they're not willing to rely on a third party, is by using a device called a hardware wallet, um, which is really great at generating those private keys, uh, securing them on the device. Uh, you, In order to hack this thing, you have to have physical access to it. Uh, it's extremely uh, difficult to do, even with the, it's offline. the appropriate... Uh, even with the appropriate equip equipment and it's stored in cold storage, which is completely offline, right? Um, and that's great. And that's a, a much better security posture than is the reliance on a third party uh, and having that counterparty risk. Uh, but again, now you've taken full, complete responsibility for that Bitcoin wealth. Uh, and if somebody gets a hold of that private key, either from um, accessing the device or more reasonably accessing the backup to it, which is just 12 words written down in a specific order in clear text. Uh, if somebody gets a hold of that and they know what it is and they know what to do with it, they can spend your Bitcoin, right? And so the key question is like, how do we, how do we address these trade-offs when we've decided we know we need to allocate to Bitcoin um, and we're trying to figure out how to hold it ourselves so that we can take full advantage of it um, versus counterparty risk. And then this single point of failure that is associated with the way that most people hold Bitcoin. And that is exactly where Unchained Capital uh, 
shines and excels, right, is providing what we call collaborative custody, which uses uh, some functionality that's built into Bitcoin called multi-signature. Um, it's native to the protocol. It's not anything that we've developed. We're just leveraging this functionality to provide a platform that's really easy for people to use to secure their Bitcoin in the best possible way. Um, and in a way that's extremely resilient, not only to you making a mistake, but also to some external attacker um, coming to your house, putting a gun to your head and saying, give me all of your Bitcoin. Um, we help you get that scenario set up where that's not uh not that it's not possible, it's just extremely expensive and extremely risky for somebody to actually do that, right? So we're eliminating this single point of failure while also providing the ability for you to operate independently from any other third-party counterparty. And it's kind of an in-between of the do-it-yourself, single wallet, um, and put it on a Coinbase, Gemini, Kraken, something like that, where it's honestly, it's a central centralized single point of failure for that institution. Exactly right. Or you've got yourself. Three, yeah, yeah. In that scenario, you've got three different single points of failure and three different counterparty risk, uh, you know, scenarios yeah. there that you have to think about. Um, you know, when we, when we think about um, Bitcoin as well, something we didn't mention before is that, um, you know, when you're holding cash, when you're holding gold, when you're holding Bitcoin, there is no counterparty risk. Mm -hmm. um, when I go think back to my my banking days, right, one of the key risks on that capital markets trading floor and the way that we think about uh, servicing clients there uh, and sourcing liquidity is that counterparty risk question. And there's huge yep. amounts of um, capital and processes and procedures uh, and monitoring and and um, you know risk assessment that goes into making sure that we have a, a handle on what that counterparty risk is, how to quantify it, and, and all of that, uh, as opposed to holding Bitcoin on your own keys, which has no counterparty risk. Now you do have the responsibility for taking care of that, uh, and again, that's where um, you know this collaborative custody model that we employ at Unchained, uh, um, you know, via our platform, is, is really really nice. You can have a setup where you don't have that counterparty risk, where you've got full, unadulterated, permissionless access to your Bitcoin the way that Satoshi intended it, but you don't have a single point of failure and you don't have to do it yourself. Unchained can be a part of that collaborative custody setup such that if anything happens to the private keys that you are controlling, we can step in and help you to recover your Bitcoin uh, in almost every single scenario that you can think of uh, to move it out of that compromised situation and into an uncompromised uh, new vault. We, we call our, our collaborative custody product a vault uh, just to give that, that connotation of exactly what it is. The most secure, most resilient way that you can hold Bitcoin while still retaining full, complete control of it. Right. No, and that's awesome. So that kind of, I think, you know, running on an hour, most people kind of 40 minutes or so love to check out after that if, if they're really into it. So why don't we just use that as an opportunity to wrap up and maybe you can tell uh, the audience where they can find you, where they can find out more about Unchained Capital and uh, anything, you know, important uh, in your mind that, that whether it's people uh, you think they should follow or books they should read or just materials, uh, maybe you can give us some insight there. Yeah, well, I'll start with Unchained, right? Um, Unchained.com. 
Um, we've got that great domain name. Feel free to go check out the website, um, check out the products, services that we're offering. Uh, and there's a button right on that website where you can schedule a consultation. You'll be in touch with myself or, or somebody uh, who's in my group to help walk you through what that process looks like, what does a platform look like, um, help you understand some of the other financial services that we offer, which is um, really above and beyond that core custody uh, product that we have there um, around Bitcoin-backed loans and being able to buy Bitcoin uh, in larger amounts and have it settled directly into that vault that you've got created. Um, we have Bitcoin IRAs as well. Uh, and so you know, we're really building this private bank um, that's Bitcoin native. Um, you know, as Bitcoin becomes globally adopted, it doesn't obviate the need for people to have access to certain financial services. And so we are well positioned to be that one-stop shop for people who understand the importance of self-custody first and foremost, uh, and then want to have access to some of those financial services. Um, I'm on Twitter at um, TS underscore HODL. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Trey Sellers. Uh, and then, you know, in terms of resources, I would say go check out uh, on our website, go to the blog and read the Gradually Then Suddenly series um, by Parker Lewis. Uh, go to our YouTube channel and check out Bitcoin in One Lesson, which we mentioned before. Uh, you're going to get a really great primer there uh, in terms of how to think about Bitcoin uh, in terms of its value proposition, uh, why it can't be copied why uh, there's no other real competitor to it as, uh, as a money uh, and why it's going to be the next global reserve asset. So we'll, we'll leave it there. Yeah, no, awesome. Thanks for joining today, Trey, and look forward to catching up with you in the future. Sounds good. Thanks, Ken. I appreciate it.